Welcome to Business Authority Radio, bringing you insights from today's thought leaders, professionals, and influencers, with your hosts, Neil Howe and Craig Williams. Hello and welcome to the show. This is your host, Neil Howe, and today's guest is Victor Menashe. He is the author of the new book, Magnetic Capital, How to Raise All the Money for Any Worthy Venture. He is an active real estate developer, and he helps select clients scale their real estate investment businesses. Welcome to the show, Victor. Great to be here. Well, let's jump right in. Uh, how long have you been involved in real estate, and what got you started in it? My path into real estate was not your traditional uh, career path. I started out my career in technology. I started out as a microprocessor designer and rose through the ranks of various both private and public uh, semiconductor and telecom companies. And about 2008, took a left-hand turn in my career, um, saw the opportunity that was taking place in the real estate markets, you know, with the meltdown that was occurring in the U.S., and made the decision at that point to move full-time into the world of real estate investment. So a bit of a, an unusual career path. Uh, definitely. It's a big switch, and I imagine getting into real estate just as the world was crashing all around, <laughs> around was uh, definitely a big decision you had to make. Now, you are in Ontario, right? Correct, correct. And But most of the projects that we're involved with right now are actually south of the border, uh, so a lot of the things we do are in the U.S., Okay, so obviously real estate is a massive industry. There's lots of different areas that you can specialize in. Uh, what have you specialized in and how do you help people uh, with real estate investment right now? Just like in any business, you know, my definition of a business is first and foremost, it's a team sport. It's got to be the kind of business where if you step out of it, it continues to operate without you. Uh, if it's not that, that's called self-employed. And and that's not the same thing. Uh, so my definition of a business has got to have some scale to it. And what I've uncovered is that a lot of people who are getting into real estate investing are actually playing too small. Uh, they're sticking with residential. Uh, and by residential, I'm talking about residential underwriting rules from, from a, a banking perspective. And, and the problem with that is that the banks assume that the repayment of that bank loan is coming primarily out of your employment income. Uh, whereas in the world of commercial, if you have a thousand unit apartment complex, your personal salary is not going to fix a problem on that property. It's got to be the performance of the asset. So in the world of commercial, um, it, it's the performance of the asset, the management of the asset that counts. Whereas in the world of residential, they're treating it almost the same as your owner occupied single family home. And so those are two very different worlds. So I made the decision early on. While I did start in the world of residential, I made the decision early on to move into the world of commercial because it really unlocks the ceiling. There definitely seems to be a lot of commercial uh, building going on around Atlanta right now. It's it's crazy the amount of uh, new businesses that are going up here. Uh, what is it like in the rest of the United States? Well, it's obviously, uh, you know, varies by, by market and, uh, you know, each market is intensely local. It, we went through a, a period of maybe five, six years with almost no new construction. You could buy things for well below construction cost for a number of years. And so it didn't make sense to build new. So with that five, six year period of no new construction, there was a lot of pent up demand. And we're starting to see some of that pent up demand 
uh, you know, getting caught up with and in some cases maybe even overbuilt. But um, so, you know, the market, like you said, is a little bit frenzied right now and, it, and it's feeling a little bit frothy to me. Um, but it really depends on the market fundamentals. You know, it, I only invest in cities where there's that influx of jobs, that influx of population. You know, some people look at cities like Detroit and say, well, I want to invest there because I can buy things cheap. Well, things are cheap for a reason. They've lost almost 50% of their population since mm-hmm. the 1970s, and that's a shrinking city. Uh, will people come back? I don't know. But long term, that's been a shrinking city. I prefer to go into places where there is, like I said, influx of jobs, influx of population, because it's those economic fundamentals that drive the value of real estate. So you've decided to concentrate on the commercial aspect of it. And obviously, in the last 10 years, you've done a lot of business. What are you helping people with now as in, in regards to you know helping them with their own real estate investment business? There's a lot of people out there providing education on real estate and things like that, and I can certainly do that, but that's not my focus. What I find is that there are people who have been involved in real estate for a number of years. They've achieved a certain level of success. Maybe they have 30, maybe 50 units, and they've hit the ceiling. They simply can't get past that point. Maybe they've run out of capital. They've run, they've hit some obstacle, uh, but, and they want to grow. And, and for me, that's the ideal client. I, you know, if you're stuck at 20 doors and you want to get to 500, I can show you how to do that. That, that's kind of my specialty. Um, most of the time, what people get stuck on are the things that they simply are lacking the skills in their team. You know, people often enter real estate from varied backgrounds. They may come from construction and say, well, I'm handy and I can use my construction background, therefore I'm going to go into real estate investing. Well, that's great. That gives you 20% of what you need. Uh, the other 80% is is critical as well. So oftentimes I, I see a lot of these businesses – operating with gaps and it's not surprising that they're stuck because those gaps are what's holding them back. And, um, you know, I take a very rounded, very business approach to real estate investing. It's not the real estate part that matters. It's, it's the business, you know, do you understand marketing? Do you understand negotiation? Do you know how to raise capital? Um, you know, do you have systems and processes and procedures to manage teams locally and remotely? All those types of things that you need, to have a successful business. It doesn't matter whether it's a real estate business, a restaurant, or a technology company. It's all the same. Mm-hmm. Now, real estate is, you know, definitely been one of the things that people tend to invest in quite a lot. Uh, one of the people that I follow is Grant Cardone. And, you know, I know, are you familiar with Grant Cardone? I am, in fact. So Grant's originally from Lake Charles, Louisiana, and we're actually, we're actively doing a number of projects in his hometown. Uh, it's kind of funny. I don't know how active he is in Lake Charles right now, but because uh, he's, you know, obviously doing a lot uh, in the media and uh, writing books and all that kind of stuff. But we're very active in Lake Charles, and uh, mm-hmm. a lot of the people that I know from that town knew Grant when he was, um, you know, working in car dealerships. Right. And, you know, he was in the car industry and still is pretty much in the car industry, but he seems to have taken off to, you know, owning just a few properties to now owning thousands of doors, like you say, which, you know, that kind of scale 
is uh, very hard for some people to realize maybe, but what are two of the three, two or three of the problems that people might have going from just owning a couple of investment properties to owning large scale like that? Probably the number one thing is just mastering the skill of how to raise capital. You know, it's one thing to talk to a couple of friends and family and say, let's join venture on a project to going out and doing a proper capital raise on a larger scale. And what I've uncovered, and I, I got my skill in raising capital back in my technology days. Um, and what I discovered was that the process of raising money is the same, almost independent of industry. And, you know, I wrote the book Magnetic Capital because I saw a void in the marketplace. There were, there were these, um, I don't know, rules, I'll almost call them laws of nature, that if you follow these rules, raising money was remarkably easy. And when it was hard, I found that it was because one or more of these elements were missing. And and so that was really the impetus for me to write the book Magnetic Capital because I just saw these rules that people were breaking all the time and they were struggling. And when you do it right, when you it's almost effortless, like it really is. And I, I don't mean to make it sound trivial because it's not, but it's it's so much easier when you follow those basic principles. Hmm. So I'll I'll go through them briefly. Number one is relationship. Most people are not going to part with large sums of their hard-earned savings with people they don't know. Um, and a lot of times, people don't invest in developing those relationships, and, and, and they are key. So if you don't take that time and really invest in building those relationships, it's going to be very, very hard to raise money. That's, so that's number one. Number two um, is trust. And trust is more than just, am I dealing with an honest person? It's a whole complex psychological contract. It's things like, can I trust you to put together a good plan? Can I trust you to execute the plan? Can I trust you to hire the right people? Can I trust you with my money? Can I trust you to communicate in an open and transparent way? And on and on and on. There's like a whole bunch of questions like this. And if any one of those are missing, it kind of doesn't work. So it's really to understand that deeper psychological contract of trust. Number three is results. What's your track record? Show me that you know how to be successful. People are going to be very reluctant to uh, to invest with a rookie simply who has no, traf- no track record. And you, know, you might be thinking, well, if I don't have a track record, how am I going to raise money? How am I going to raise money if I don't have a track record? It's a catch-22. I'm stuck. Well, there is a way out of that, and quite simply, you don't have to be thinking about going it alone. Like I said at the outset, business is a team sport. So if you are lacking experience, if you're lacking that track record, go work with somebody who has that track record for a period of time, maybe six months, maybe two years. So now you can legitimately borrow some of their credibility because you've earned it. You've worked in that business and, and and done those types of projects, and now you have a bit of a track record that you can use to go raise money. So that's number three. Number four is you've got to have a compelling opportunity. And this is one, you know, I see rookie, mis- rookie investors make this mistake all the time. They make it all about the deal. It's all about the deal, the deal, the deal. And it's rarely about the deal. It's first and foremost about all those other things. Now, but at the, at the end of the day, you also have to have a compelling opportunity. Now, what does that really mean? 
It's like asking, is the image on the magazine cover beautiful? Well, maybe. It's kind of in the eye of the beholder. For one investor, it might be storage units. It might be medical office buildings. Uh, so that definition of beauty, or it might be a, a financial criteria, like I've got to buy it at 40 cents on the dollar in order for it to be attractive to me. So, you know, understanding what's compelling is is uh, is key. And oftentimes I see rookie investors doing projects on far too thin a margin, and that's when projects are dangerous. Because if you have one or two things go wrong, your margin evaporates. You have three things go wrong, now you're you're upside down. Uh, so I, I I don't like projects with thin margins. I always like fat margins because that's that's your cushion. That's what protects you from when the real world kicks in and and things do go wrong because they do. Mm-hmm. Last item is alignment, and this is assessing the what I call the perfect fit between the goals for the money and the goals for the entrepreneur. And if you don't have that alignment, it's not going to work. If there's any element of it that feels forced, don't do it. Don't take the money. Um, you know, it, uh, the analogy that I use is kind of like a pair of shoes. You know, you can go to the shoe store and you can find the most beautiful pair of shoes, and, my gosh, it's your lucky day. They're on sale this week. But if they don't fit, you're not a buyer. It doesn't matter how lovely they are or, or how deeply discounted they are. If the fit isn't there, you're not going to you're not going to buy. So it's exactly the same with investing. And when you get that perfect fit, you'll, you'll know it. Uh, And so what, what is that, what is that fit? It's things like, what's the size of the investment? What's the term of the investment? What's the rate of return? What's the risk? What's the security? What's the control structure? What's the tax consequence? And on and on. There's about eight or 10 different criteria on alignment. And when you have that perfect fit, like I said, raising the money is remarkably easy. It is very interesting, uh, the list that you mentioned there, um, you know, especially with the relationships, the trust and the results. You know, one of the reasons that I got into the market that I'm in right now with the media and authority marketing is because my background was in SEO and somebody came to me specifically to, uh, SEO their names. So when they went to the bank for a loan, um, the bank manager could look at what Google was saying about them and see that they have relationships with other people, that they are trusted by Google and they have results and those kinds of things. So that's really important um, to have that trust uh, before you go and you ask somebody for money. But after that, you're saying that it becomes a lot easier once these kinds of things are in place? Yeah, once those things are in place, it's definitely a lot easier. And the, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things that has momentum. So when you develop a reputation, for example, for uh, de- delivering successful projects, these days I don't have to go hunting for projects. Like, I really don't. They all come to me. I'm approached literally on a weekly basis Oftentimes it's too much and I can't even look at them all. Um, so I have the opportunity to cherry pick the best opportunities and, and, and that's what I go build. It's not, uh, you know, I'm never, I'm never hunting for deals. They always come to me. Well, like you said, once you get that reputation for, you know, dealing wisely with somebody's money, uh, there's a lot of money out there 
if uh, you have that correct reputation. So why aren't more people dealing with this? Uh, there's money to be had for the right deal. So other than the money, what are any other problems that people might have scaling to that size? I think there's a few things. I mean, one of the things that I hear very frequently from from investors is they're uncomfortable with asking for money. And I get that. So my response is pretty simple. I say, great, then don't ask for money because I don't ask for money. What I do instead is I give people the opportunity to collaborate with me on a project. And that's a very different posture. Mm-hmm. You know, it, in fact, if it's if I'm dealing with someone with whom I have a strong relationship, it would in fact be disloyal for me to not offer them that opportunity. You know, if if it's someone whose relationship I truly value, then I should be making that opportunity available to them. And I'm and I and I'm really genuine when I say I'm not asking for money because I'm not. I'm very secure that the projects that we're doing are strong that they have, you know, very good margins, that we've got good teams in place, and that we can execute well on them, even when things go wrong. And it's in that context that, you know, I say, look, here's here's the protection that exists on the downside. Here's how we've analyzed the project. Uh, I think it's kind, kind of compelling. Do you want to come along for the ride? And if yes, great. If no, that's fine, too. The relationship's far more important than this project. Right, and that's that's certainly a, a great place to be. Uh, but what are maybe one or two misconceptions that people might have before they get to that place of having that uh, reputation to be able to offer that kind of a deal? I think a lot of times they don't even know what's possible. Right. Um, you know, uh, I'll give you I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, if you go back. You know, 15, 20 years, people talked about the no money down deal as kind of the nirvana in real estate investing. And the banks have done as much as they can to eliminate the no money down deal. Because if the developer has no skin in the game, they believe that they're undertaking higher risk. The way that we create the no money down deal is by creating enough value. I'll give you a simple example. Um, what do you want? Do you want a fourplex or do you want a hundred units? It doesn't matter. The math's the same. Um, what, what we do, well, I'll give you an example of a 10 unit building. This is a building we built in Philadelphia and two th- it was complete in 2015. We bought the land for $45,000. Uh, at the time our construction cost was $88 a square foot. We completed that 10 unit building, uh, for a million and fifty, uh, $1 million and $50,000. It appraised at 1.82 million. So we were able to go back to the bank and refinance at 75% loan to value. The bank gave us back a million three, which was more than our total investment in the project. At that point, it became a no money down deal. Mm. So in, in a year, about a year and a half, we were able to create a half million dollars of equity out of thin air without having any cash tied up in the deal. Now we had some cash tied up during what I'll call the higher risk phase, which is the you know pre-construction and through the construction phase, but post the refinance, we had no cash tied up in it, and we still had 25% equity, which is a reasonably safe equity ratio. Uh, and and that's our formula. That's what we do each and every time. Now our construction cost is no longer $88 a square foot. Costs have gone up, 
you know, we're building today, you know, a decent quality B plus quality product for about $105, $106 a square foot um, in most markets. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we're able to continue repeating that same formula. Um, it, it's, that's basically it. That's what we do. Now, let's get back to your book for a minute. Uh, obviously, the five rules in raising capital are extremely important, but what else can we expect to find in the book that's going to help with uh, real estate investing? We talk about a number of different things. Um, you know, because my background is from engineering, one of the things that we that I spent a lot of time on uh, back when I was a microprocessor designer and then a technology manager uh, is risk management. And there's a whole formal process around risk management. So, you know, maybe your listeners have heard the term, well, that's high risk. Well, in my world, that's that's a silly sentence. It doesn't make any sense. We separate risk into two concepts, likelihood and impact. And so, for example, if you had something that was high likelihood of occurring and high impact, I would ask the very simple question, why is that still a risk? Why haven't you treated that as a certainty and planned around that in your plan? If it's in your plan, it's already embedded in the plan, it's not a risk anymore. So we spend a lot of time on risk management uh, in the book and also in the management of our own projects building those safety nets, making sure that we are managing the risks appropriately. Uh, And, you know, I'm constantly reminded when I see things in the news about a project that went bad, uh, I look at what happened, and and I often, it's very obvious that they simply did not do a good job of the risk management. You know, they can blame the city, they can blame all kinds of different things, but at the end of the day, they didn't do a good job of risk management. So that's a central feature as well. Okay, Victor, so why do people come to you for help? You know, what kind of situations do you help them with? Can you give me an example of somebody maybe that you have helped? Absolutely. Uh, for example, one of my clients had built a portfolio of um, uh, multi-unit residential apartments, and they were actually too highly leveraged. And so they were they were in negative cash flow Um because they were too highly leveraged, uh, you know, they had taken second fi- secondary financing and in some cases tertiary financing, and they were, you know, writing checks every month. Well, that's not the idea. The idea is to have positive cash flow. It's not just to build net worth because at the end of the day, you can't take your balance sheet to the grocery store and buy groceries with it. Mm-hmm. You need cash flow. So what we did with that particular client was focus on restructuring some of the debt. Um, in some cases, replacing some of that debt with equity. Uh, so, you know, changing out, repaying some of those second and third loans uh, that were at high interest rates and bringing in equity investors in their place. So that meant giving up some equity, but now they're no longer upside down. So some of those types of things, you know, sound obvious, but when you're in it and you're trying to you know, build your business on your own, bootstrapping from from the ground up. It's not so obvious. You you're often stuck with the whatever limiting beliefs you might have about how the best way to you know to do things. Um, you know, that's one example. Another example: I have a client who owns a chain of uh, retirement residences, and uh, he was doing a, doing a very good job. Uh, but what he was doing was actually giving up far too much equity in his capital raises, and so I was able in this most recent capital raise that he completed to save him about 25% equity. Uh, so that ultimately is 
huge, huge increase in profitability over the lifespan of that project uh, in terms of, you know, cash in his pocket. Um, yeah, that's, that certainly can be huge. 25% savings, that is a, that's a big deal right there. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, I focus a lot on deal structure. Uh, you know, people come to me because they look at, they look at what I'm doing. They say, Victor, you know, I want to do what you're doing. And they, they, they like the fact that I'm not just an educator. I'm not just an author of a book. I'm someone who's out there in the trenches doing the work each and every day. And I don't, um, I don't preach what I practice. Sorry, other way around. I preach what I practice. I don't <laughs> practice what I preach, if, if, if that makes any sense. So I, I'm, I'm teaching people to do what I do each and every day. And if it, if that, stops working in the marketplace, if the market conditions change, I have to change and so do they. There's so many educators out there that are teaching things that worked 10 years ago or things that worked 15 or 20 years ago that no longer work today because the market conditions have changed. That's a very dangerous place, very dangerous place to be. Definitely. So, Victor, if there's one lesson that you learned earlier on, early on in your commercial investing career, what would that be and how does it impact the way that you do business today? Probably the biggest lesson that I've learned, and I've made, and I say this with all humility, I've probably had to learn this more than once, is when things go wrong, there's, there's sometimes two causes, two broad causes. Number one, it's an act of God, something you could have never foreseen, or you've got the wrong people in the wrong roles. And overwhelmingly, it's the second. So when and when you have the wrong people in the wrong roles, you can take a good deal. If it's badly managed, it will not be a deal anymore. So it always comes back to have you got the right people in the right roles. And when I focus really hard on you know solving problems, it's usually at the people level. It's because we've got the wrong people in the wrong roles. And almost every screw up every failure that I've ever experienced. And again, I say this with complete humility. It's, I can trace it back to that one thing. Hmm. So, uh, Victor, what does the future look like for your business and, uh, you know, commercial real estate investing in Canada and the U S where you deal mainly, what's it look like in years to come? I don't know how far out in the future I can look. I can say that today the market feels very frenzied. Uh, people are buying things at what I consider to be stupid prices, uh, prices that I would never buy at. I'm mm. happy to sell in that environment, but not happy to buy in that environment. You know, when you get a, an apartment complex of a couple hundred units and there's 20 offers on it, I never want to be the winning bidder when there's 19 other offers. Right. Right. That's just, that's lunacy. But I can build things typically for a third less than that same product that's being sold in the market at a premium. So I'd rather build, have control. I'm not competing with, you know, 19 or 20 other people. I'm building the right product at the right price, getting it leased up. And if I sell it down the road, that's fine. If I refinance it down the road, that's fine. Uh, I think that's the way to maintain control. And I'm, I'm not a control freak. But I like that element of control. You know, there's so many aspects of the market today that feel like the investor has no control. Certainly the equity markets, Wall Street today, 
I would say that the small investor has almost no control. Um, whereas I feel like the projects that we're doing right now, we have a tremendous amount of control and that builds safety into it from, from my perspective. Well, that certainly makes a lot of sense. And, you know, if you are investing into a big project like this, you want to make sure the person who's running it does have control and uh, feels in control to make sure that everything goes right. People don't like to take risks with their money. Uh, Victor, we've covered a lot today, lots of great information from you. If there's anything that you'd like to mention, uh, something important that we haven't talked about maybe, uh, what would that be? Well, if, if folks want to learn more about how to raise capital, um, by all means, uh, go get a copy of Magnetic Capital. You can get it on my website at victorjm.com. That's victorjm.com. And, you know, I think it'll really help you. Certainly the feedback that I've received from the readers uh, that have read the book has been tremendous. And, uh, you know, many people are telling me how much it's helped them. So I'm, that's the main reason I wrote the book. It wasn't for the money, but really to help, uh, help people in the community further their, their ambitions as entrepreneurs, as real estate investors. Uh, and, you know, like I said, what I, what I talk about in the book applies to business in general. It's not real estate specific. If you're looking to raise, you know, a couple hundred million dollars to go buy a business. The process is the same. Well, that's awesome, Victor. Um, is that the best place for people to contact you through your website as well, or do you have another yes. way for them to contact you? Yes, they can. Uh, there's a contact form on the website, or if they want to reach out to me directly, I, my email is victor at victorjm.com, and I'm happy to uh, take any listeners' questions. Excellent. Well, Victor Menashe, thank you for joining me today on the Business Authority Radio Show. Victor is the author of the book Magnetic Capital, How to Raise All the Money for Any Worthy Venture. Thank you very much for being my guest on the show. And to our audience, if you like what you hear, hit that like button and share, and we'll see you next time on the show. My pleasure. Great talking with you. You've been listening to Business Authority Radio with Neil Howe and Greg Williams. To learn more about the resources mentioned in today's show or to listen to past episodes, visit businessauthorityradio.com.